another edition today. Uh, we're happy to have with us today Mr. Denny DeMeyer and Mr. John Thaliker, both of whom were on the show with me a while back, back in July, actually, as we were leading up to what has come to be uh, one of the most important events that takes place. And correct me, guys, is this something we're doing every year now, or is it not every year, the rendezvous? Yes, it's every year. This will be our 19th consecutive year of holding and, rendezvous. And it seems, I don't know, we're gonna, you're going to tell us as we go through the show today um, uh, about this particular one, but from past history, the, the, show, the uh, rendezvous has always been really, really popular, and um, you guys have done a good job of choosing good topics, good locations, and good speakers and participants, so uh, it, it just seems to be something that's getting stronger and stronger. Um, before we start the show today, though, I do have a bit of, of sad news. I was just talking with John about that offline, Denny, before you were able to come on. This past weekend, uh, our great friend and fellow surveyor and fellow NSPS president, Jim Boyer, passed away this past weekend. Uh, Jim was our president in 1993. Uh, John was our president in 1985, um, and uh, so that John and I know John and Jim were uh, both really strong mentors to me as I was coming through NSPS, and Jim in particular being just down the road from, from me across the border in Tennessee, um, and just a, a stellar guy, as John certainly knows, and one that we will we'll all miss. He was just one of those guys who had a lot of grace about him. And uh, just just a really really fine gentleman. So I don't know if you anything want to add anything or not, John. Well, yeah, Jim was like you said a very unique individual. Uh, he certainly represented his portion of the country when he was a uh, uh, director uh, on the NSPS board, which I had the pleasure of serving with him. And uh, then as he went on to the chair as president and um, had a, a unique way of going through things, but it was always a, in a very positive manner, taught me the true meaning of eating grits for breakfast. <laughs> but uh, our, we're going to miss him a great deal, and definitely uh, condolences to his wife, Sue. She's just a wonderful lady. Yeah, and you know, Jim was also one of the the few of the ones of us who are NSPS presidents who actually was president of ACSM at one time as well. Yes, and, and uh, but I I think something I wrote in uh, uh, when I wrote something in the to the funeral home site about Jim was he he taught me that leadership is actually an exercise in giving and grace, um, and and I think that's probably. Uh, a legacy for him because he was certainly both of those. No question about that. So with that, we'll move on the show. I just wanted to, to mention Jim this morning because we we'll miss him dearly. So you guys had, from what I am seeing in all the reports, quite an adventure and quite a good crowd at the, the rendezvous this year. Am I correct? Yeah, we were very pleased to. Uh, we attracted, I think, 118 registrants, and I know John and I and the whole committee was fairly concerned that this far away from the East Coast and the Midwest, which is the bulk of our membership, um, that whether or not we could attract 
you know, very many people here. Uh, we knew that we would, I guess we budgeted, John, for what, 75 and hope for 100? Well, the uh, quote-unquote break-even was at 75 because we just didn't know. and We, we would have maxed out probably at about 170. Yeah, so we had 118, and they were real pleased with with that. Um, and the, from people from you know all over the United States uh, and Canada, we were really pl- pleased to uh, attract some individuals from uh, British Columbia and Alberta. So that that kind of made up for, as you said, not being on the East Coast where most of your members are, and and the topics that you were talking about certainly were, were of interest to them as well. Surely. Yeah, we try to touch upon, you know, uh, topics that are kind of unique to the environment or where we're actually holding the, the conference or the rendezvous, but of a, of a general nature also. Um, so, and that gets to be a, a little bit of a battle sometimes is, you know, to get local history of interest to, you know, something that's also of interest to somebody from New York or Georgia. But I, I think we hit the nail on the head. Uh, we were able to supply a varied uh, topics, uh, focusing mostly on the international boundary, which by definition has an international interest. Uh, so, yes, I was very pleased. And am I correct that the program planning for rendezvous is actually not something that one group of people does all the time? Somebody in a particular part of the country has a an event they would like to put together, and then I know that there's not a big staff, obviously, at at the Surveyors Historical Society, although you have just recently gotten a, a, a new person there for your exec. But it really is down to the to the people in the local area. And I guess a, a question, too, about the topic. Is this, does the group get together and figure out a topic, or do people bring ideas, or how does that work? Well, generally, uh, it, it comes out of a, a local individual or group uh, that would, quote-unquote, like to do it. The um, board, um, which is uh, the directors, from, they're from all over the United States. In fact, Denny just went on as a uh, board member. I was one back in the 90s. Uh, takes care of the general business, but the rendezvous, uh, different people from different areas uh, make uh, proposals to the board um, uh, to put on uh, the meeting and uh, the entire uh, conference uh, on an idea, and then they're they're chosen by the board and the membership. So there can be uh, two or three things up any one given year, and then usually about three years out so that there's plenty of time for planning and get the word out. And then I guess the local group does a lot of the the, pl- the planning, the logistics of what what uh, courses are going to be taught or what events are going to be held. And I don't know if you have to actually do all the hotel procurement or anything. I, I, the reason I'm asking these questions is we here in our office of uh, uh, such a huge staff we have of all three and a half of us, um, planning for those types of things get, is pretty. Uh, pretty difficult although we do it on a regular basis and and i'm assuming if you're doing it maybe for once once every every so often it's it's probably difficult too so am i correct that that you all deal with the hotels too or does your exec do that yeah in this particular one we did everything we had the idea denny presented it a number of years ago 
Um, and uh, we worked on it, and the hotels, all the meals, uh, in this particular uh, case, we, uh, see, we went from Wednesday with a board meeting uh, and had a, ended up a fr- uh, Sunday evening. We had a one-day special. But so we were doing boats and buses and everything else. So we had a lot of logistics. Yeah, I know, uh, just as a Denny and uh we had to, you know, basically candidate for the rendezvous, um, and, you know, we were awarded it. We had to candidate about two years ahead of time to, you know, make a proposal, so we had to have some of our ducks in order. Uh, and then I know Dolores, my wife, and I visited uh, some of the convention centers, and there's not a lot here in Bellingham. And uh, we did visit the Silver Reef Casino, which was, I just cannot say enough uh, for those people, uh, Linda Barcelo who's in charge of catering and rooms and everything, just couldn't have been better to deal with. The facilities were fantastic. The meals were great. Uh, but it was kind of an open-and-shut thing when stores and I visited the, um, you know, that particular uh, place to hold the, the conference. Uh, and then everything else pretty much uh, fell in place. But like John had said, the it's kind of good news, bad news. The, the, the bad news is you're kind of on your own, uh, but the good news is that the board uh, gives you just so much free reign uh, and, you know, pretty good advice. But you're you're literally uh, uh, in charge of the whole thing is that, you know, the decisions are, are basically the, the local committees. The board is there to support you, but uh, pretty much you have free reign. So the good, the good and the bad is that you do it on your own. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they're not looking over your shoulder all the time at all. And uh, one of the advantages is most of the board members of the Surveyors Historical Society have hosted rendezvous themselves, so they're great with advice. And one of the things that came out of our rendezvous is that it was decided to uh, actually appoint a rendezvous committee. So starting in 2016, the SHS will actually have a rendezvous committee to help local individuals, you know, sponsor uh, and work through some of the logistics of hosting a, a rendezvous, which when John and I and came up with this tremendously bright idea, right, John? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> we had, I don't know, speaking for myself, not a clue how much was involved. Now, John's been involved, and, in, of course, we had Tim Kent, and most of your listeners know Tim from Vancouver, Washington, uh, and he's was a tremendous help because he he's been involved in both the Oregon State Society uh conferences and together with the Land Surveyors Association of Washington conferences. So he was a huge help uh, in it. But yeah, we were kind of pretty much on our own. Well, now that you have uh, have shown you can do it, then so they created the <laughs> committee so they can just keep using you to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, in a way we're, we're, it, well, in, in a way we're flattered because it, if I do have to, I, we do have to say so, it came off tremendously well. We were very, very pleased. Yeah, and that's that's a good testament. When you do something well, people want to want to use your expertise going ahead, and that's perfectly per- perfectly natural and a good idea because you you do want some folks who've had some experience in doing this thing guiding other people as you you go into the next round. And now I understand. And I know we got a minute and fifteen seconds or so before our first break, but uh, maybe we can talk a little bit and begin it now and, and end up when we come back where things are headed for the next one and and uh, maybe the one after that. I think you already know where those the next two years are going to be. 
Yeah, 2016 is going to be in uh, the Adirondacks in Lake George. Uh, it's going to be about Burplank Coleman, who was a surveyor for the, or a private surveyor that was largely responsible for not only surveying the, the state park, but was getting it to be established as the state park. 2017 uh, is going to be in New Hampshire, I think, Thoreau Pond. Uh, Henry David Thoreau was a surveyor. A lot of people don't realize that. Uh, and I believe that's 2017. 2018, we're shooting for London, England, and we can speak a little bit more about that, you know, maybe later. Yeah, that'll be good. Uh, when we come back from break, we can talk about all of those and, and where where things are heading going there. The the Thoreau one, maybe we can chat about that a little bit. Uh, a while back, there was a book out uh, about his his survey of the pond. I don't know if you ever saw that or not, but it was pretty cool. So maybe we've got... Uh, Got to go to the break now, but we'll come back and pick up on those thoughts. Want to know if your Seanstead locator is still under warranty? Go to Seanstead.com and click on Warranty Finder in the lower left-hand corner. Enter your six-digit serial number, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Out of warranty? Click on Repair Department. But here's a tip. Before sending it in, pick up a $25 discount by going to Specials and Sales under the Buy Now tab at www.schonstedt.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800 438 0387 or go to quickstake.com that's q-u-i-k-s-t-a-k-e dot com and order your samples ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today attention surveyors Seanstead announces the Maggie the next generation magnetic locator the Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead, the best just got better. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Before we went to the break, we were talking a bit about some of the the future events for the for the rendezvous, and, and I want to I will want to talk about that a little bit later on. And but this is your show, and and I wanted to give you all the an op- opportunity to talk about it, any portion or all of the portions of it that you would like. Um, I, I know that when we talked before the rendezvous, we were able to touch a little bit on your group of speakers, which was a pretty uh, uh, impressive list. So I don't know if you want to touch on any of their activities or, or how their their presentations, uh, if that might be a good place to begin. Sure. I, um, we were, I continue to be amazed, uh, John and I were discussing this just a little while ago, is, is well, the, the pool of knowledgeable speakers that are out there and how eager they are to speak 
uh, about their topics that we did offer the folks um, hotel rooms and uh, registration, which included all the meals in this particular case. But the travel was totally up to them. And so uh, we were, you know, I, I called uh, John Brock from Australia and asked him if he would like to speak. And he was all over it, even though he had to pay his own way. Uh, Skip uh, Thebert from Maryland, who's uh, the the guru, if you will, of the history of the U.S. Coast and Geodetic Survey, which was quite involved out here in the West Coast, of course, uh, he jumped at the opportunity to come and speak to something that's near and dear to him. Uh, we had an author from uh, Vancouver Island, uh, Michael Leyland, who was you know, eager to speak about his book. Uh, he spoke on early maritime exploration um, in, uh, in the Puget Sound or Salish Sea area. And, of course, one of my little things, uh, Kurt, has always been that a lot of these people were surveyors. They call them explorers, navigators, things like that. But whenever you locate anything on the face of the earth, you're practicing at least, surveying. And so many of these early explorers, Spanish, Russian, uh, American, British, were surveyors. Uh, So he spoke to that. Uh, We had Don Erickson from Colorado, from the U.S. Topographical Engineers. It's a reenactment group. Uh, he and his wife came up, again, you know, on their own nickel, uh, just to speak about uh, celestial navigation, practical astronomy and navigation. Um, hope I'm not leading too many people out. John Brock, of course, from Australia, who I mentioned, he got into how John, uh, 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 James Cook, the famous British, probably one of the greatest of all the British explorers or navigators, uh, surveyors, if you will, uh, was in the in the Pacific Northwest here. Now, yeah, looking back at the program, I know you had uh, Peter Sullivan and Kyle Hipsley also. Oh, that was real huge for us, uh, the fact that we were able to attract both of the International Boundary Commissioners uh, to attend the conference, and they were actually our uh, Saturday uh, banquet speakers. Uh, but speaking of, of, of people that came a long ways, uh, but we also not only was uh, Peter Sullivan the commissioner, the Canadian commissioner to the international boundary, but uh, he's also the surveyor general of all of Canada, and his deputy from Edmonton also showed up, uh, Jim McKenzie, so we were really pleased. Uh, well, another one of our speakers was David Swale, who was the deputy surveyor general for British Columbia, who spoke on the uh, uh, British Columbia-Alberta uh, border, the survey of that. And a really, really quite a cross-section of speakers and uh, incredibly qualified people. So, very pleased. I'm always intrigued about the whole Boundary Commissioner thing. Um, and, and I guess even here in the States sometimes when, when there's going to be some issue related to, although there may not be an official position within a state of a state and a Boundary Commissioner, um, somebody gets appointed to that. I, I remember a few years ago there was a project between North and South Carolina, and our friend Gary Thompson w- was part of that uh, from the North Carolina side. And so, but, but when people have these titles where they are in that position on a regular basis, what is their job exactly? Well, for Peter and um, and Kyle Hipsley, by the way, from Montana, he's also he's the United States. Uh, commissioner it's a, a peacekeeping <laughs> a kind of a uh, uh, mission if you will uh, there's still some issues uh, that come up uh, between the, the two countries every once in a while uh, the border pretty much has been you know decided all the issues over the years uh, 
but you know the border still runs right through libraries, houses, uh, taverns, uh, mostly on the eastern, uh, you know, eastern United States or eastern part of Canada. Uh, they people are still encroaching upon the boundaries, so um, you know, building fences over the line, on the line, or too close to the line. Uh, I think most of the the you know, and of course where the international boundary is, there was quite a. And I don't know if I spoke to this earlier, but in uh, late 1998 and early or late 1990s and early 2000, there was a case here in Washington, Kurt, that went to the state supreme court about where the international boundary was. Was it on the 49th parallel of astron or astronomic 49th parallel or the geodetic 49th parallel? And something as silly that, that as to you and I. Uh, it all went all the way to our state Supreme Court. Uh, and I don't know if the, the commissioners got involved in that one or not. Yeah, I, I wondered about that because um, I know this the one that's been going on, and I'm just a little familiar with it because of, of, of knowing Gary. Um, some of, When they start doing the work, they find out that one person's in a state or maybe two people are in a state where they think they were in the other one and that kind of thing. And that certainly complicates the the whole issue <laughs> because you know, people have businesses established or whatever the case may be. And I think in their particular case, one side or the other allowed sale of alcohol at a store <laughs> or something. And but it's just kind of intriguing. I think sometimes when you get into those issues, just how uh, uh, they have an impact on on people's lives that you don't really think about ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And I know sometimes the surveyors, Kurt, take a a bad rap because they it's, the public thinks that well the, the surveyors made a mistake but you have to go back into the 1700s uh, back in your part of the neck of the woods 1800s in our neck of the woods and okay how did they establish the uh, latitude and longitude back in that day and of course it was astronomic uh, using the celestial the, the sun the moon the stars and didn't have any geodetic you know monumentation to work off of and uh, you know it's incredible the amount of uh, the effort that they put into establishing either latitude and longitude, if it was going to be, uh, you know, a, a boundary, and using the the ephemeris of the day, the ephemeris. Uh, excuse me if I get on my high horse here a little bit, Kurt. Oh, that's okay. They they have to. You have to. I think this is something pounded in our profession. Use the the methods used to establish the line originally to reestablish it as best you can. And the ephemeris that they were using, published at either the Naval Observatory here in, in the United States or the Royal Observatory in, in England, they were only good to so many decimal places. And they, no one intended those ephemeris or you know almanacs to to be accurate within five feet, ten feet, or even a, a thousand feet as far as that goes. Latitude, yes. Longitude, there's no way to get any closer than that. But again, Kurt, uh, they ha- you have to look at how the original uh, surveyors, what, what methods they used, and what they had to work with um, to establish those lines. So yes, today you can go out with GPS and get it within a, you know, a fraction of an inch. Whereas then the equipment that they had, but more than anything, was the ephemeris that they were using, uh, was only accurate to within you know maybe a thousand feet. Yeah, that whole follow the footsteps concept uh, that we talk about all the time um, really comes into play here. And I don't know, it just seems to me as we move further along with our progression in equipment and knowledge and capability, 
sometimes we kind of forget that um, it, it, in our everyday work, not just on not just on uh, jurisdictional boundary lines. I, it seems as though we do. I, I I don't know how well you guys, if you knew at all, Mr. Henry Sight from West Virginia. I um, I knew him, but Henry was a was a really cool guy, and uh, actually got to sit with him or beside him at the NSPS Board of Governors for a couple of years. But he had that same philosophy that you just you just espoused there, Benny, in terms of he didn't say that you should be using a compass to do all your work, as some people accused him of saying. Yeah. He, he said that when you're doing retracement, you should do exactly what you just said, which makes a lot of sense, I think. Well, particularly, I think we're giving the wrong impression of the public whenever we say that, you know, the state line between, you know, Georgia and Tennessee I'm showing my geographical ignorance here, Kurt. I sure hope Georgia hits Tennessee. They do have a border. <laughs> <laughs> Our West Coast arrogance here. But, uh, but, yeah, some people comment on that. And some, my first question is, well, how are they establishing or how are they, why, how are they looking at that? Are they looking at astronomically or are they looking at it geodetically? Yeah, and there's certainly no, no problem with putting modern-day... Um, values on what you find uh, once you've done that retracement. I mean, that's that's a good thing. Uh, but as you said, to actually find the locations, that's that's a little bit different uh, different strategy for sure. So again, that didn't want to get off track too much there, but it's always it's always intrigued me the the boundary commissioners thing and you know what their real job is and how often they run into these these types of issues that we that we think about. Oh, just out of curiosity, when the next couple of minutes we got here before the break, what was Brock's topic? I, he always uh, has entertaining things to do. Oh, he actually had two topics, and we can touch upon it a little more uh, later. But he was uh, uh, one was uh, uh, James Cook, Vancouver. How did these these great surveyors actually do their do their work? And then he also did a more of an entertainment thing uh, with silent surveyors or. Surveyors of the Silent Screen, and I think most people know that John has quite a collection of film clips uh, of the, any, anything having to do with surveyors uh, in, uh, on the cinema. Yeah, I, I attended one of those at, it was one of our conferences years ago. He did one there, and I'm sure his collection's probably grown since then, but uh, it was just kind of interesting how much research he did to find little snippets of where they showed something that was related to surveying. Uh, it, I, it's amazing how much effort he puts into that. Yeah, there's one on right now, uh, an uh, AT&T ad that's got a surveyor on an island. It's got some guy with a level of all of, you know, two seconds. And those are the kind of things that, that John has been able to find and and cobble together. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's, that's been pretty interesting, I think, uh, for a lot of people for a really long time. And we're about ready to go to the break. When we come back, you, I don't know if you want to talk more about the, the James Cook part of, of his program, but we'll pick up on that and some other aspects of how things went uh, for the whole effort. I, I, when we first started talking about this, I was going through the program and, and I was looking at everything that was going to be going on and I was I was pretty astonished, actually, how how you're going to put up, make all that stuff happen, <laughs> because it was it was really a jam packed program, and so I know our listeners are going to be interested to hear more about how that all came about, and 
particularly your adventures as you were, I think you spent some time out on the water. So we'll be back in just a couple of minutes for after our next break. Attention surveyors, Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead, the best just got better. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not... Get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Want to know if your Seanstead locator is still under warranty? Go to Seanstead.com and click on Warranty Finder in the lower left-hand corner. Enter your six-digit serial number, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Out of warranty? Click on Repair Department. But here's a tip. Before sending it in, pick up a $25 discount by going to Specials and Sales under the Buy Now tab at www.schonstedt.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. As we were leaving, we were talking about uh, how much we all enjoy John Brock's programs, and, and you mentioned uh, the one on James Cook, and maybe you want to follow up on that. Um, but maybe you could talk more about some of the other programs, too, if, if there's things you want to share. Okay. Well, John... Um I think he was our spe- second speaker. We tried to go somewhat chronological on Thursday, which was all-day lecture day. And I'll let John Thaliker speak to Friday, uh, which was pretty much all-day field trip to San Juan Island. Uh, but John spoke on, again, James Cook and how he basically pioneered the uh, method of hydro- hydro- hydrographic surveying uh, and developed you know, principles and procedures uh, and how... Uh, I don't want to say persnickety, but how, how just incredibly de- uh, attentive he was in the detail. So uh, John Brock had mentioned, um, you know, the equipment that uh, uh, James Cook uh, insisted on, you know, using uh, his methods, how he uh, triangulated and set up shore stations. Uh, and then one of the important things uh, to us here in the Pacific Northwest, because he was followed later by George Vancouver, who's famous here in the Pacific Northwest. He was the British uh, of, the, of the Royal Navy. And uh, George Vancouver was a midshipman with James Cook. So he learned his surveying from James. And uh, if 
you've ever seen Vancouver's maps of, of Puget Sound here in the uh, the Gulf Islands and then all the way up to Queen Charlotte's in Alaska, incredibly detailed. Uh, and so he went into quite a bit of, John Brock went into quite a bit of detail on, you know, how both Cook and Vancouver did their, their surveying and produced their in, incredibly accurate charts. Uh, I do want to touch upon sometimes the Spanish who were, uh, actually were here earlier and did a little more extensive explorations. People criticized their mapping, but their whole purpose was different, and you know they, they weren't after detail. They were after basically the mouth of the, of the Northwest Passage, you know, something that went all the way across North America to the Atlantic. Uh, and the Royal Navy was also interested in that, but they were much more interested in, in exploration and, uh, well, basically territorial acquisition. So anyway, just a comment on people try to compare Spanish mapping to George Vancouver's, and there, there's no way to compare the, the two. Uh, they were equally qualified in some respects, but their whole purposes were different. Um, and then Brock, his second topic was uh, this silent, let's see, silent, surveyors of the silent uh, screen. And he went back into, uh, back into the, the 20s when uh, there was no sound and found little film snippets. Uh, sometimes it only he had to preface what he was talking about because some of these snippets were only like two or three seconds long, but there was a surveyor, you know, in the background. Uh, John kind of saved our bacon in a way. Thursday night, the only glitch that we had, uh, John, wouldn't you agree, John Thaliker, the only glitch that we had was our Thursday night dinner speaker uh, having a family emergency? Yes. Yeah. And uh, he was Michael Vorey, who was a uh, uh, author and historian from San Juan Island, who's going to speak to the pig war. And um, it was a, the pig war was uh, a dispute. Uh, well, I can get into that a little bit later, but San Juan Island was in dispute uh, who owned it, whether the British or the Americans who had jurisdiction. And the American uh, shot a British pig. And they wanted to know who was, who was going to try him, who was going, what authority, what courts were going to uh, uh, have jurisdiction. And that started what was called the Pig War in 1859, I think it was. But anyway, that he had a family emergency, uh, Michael Vawari. So uh, John Brock stepped up and said, well, I'll just show my, my film clips uh, a day a day early. So uh, that turned out very, very well. Uh, I did want to mention just, uh, Lee Taylor, the superintendent of, of uh, the national parks on San Juan Island, uh, very concerned, uh, was going to uh, have someone come over special to fill in. Uh, and I can't speak more highly of national parks uh, and Lee Taylor and their attitude towards, uh, you know, filling in for, for Michael. Uh, it was just another indication of how many people did their, you know, stood up and did their job uh, and helped out making this rendezvous a success. You were talking about ownership of San Juan Island. John Thaliger owns the whole thing now, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> well, he has jurisdiction. Uh, yeah. <laughs> is, is there any portion of the island, John, you haven't surveyed? Well, under, understanding that uh, the uh, the international boundary, of course, a part that was in uh, question, dispute, however you want to uh, uh, you know designate it. Uh, was a result of uh, the, inter- the international boundary agreement between the United States and Great Britain that 
was a bad uh, land description, or in this case, basically water description. Uh, the 49th parallel wasn't a problem, but then uh, the description that was drawn by the whoever's, definitely not surveyors, uh, came, the parallel came out to the uh, Strait of Georgia, which is a singular uh, channel between uh, the mainland and Vancouver Island, and then went southerly uh, by the main channel. Well, just at the uh, north end of the San Juan Islands, it's an archipelago. There's 172 islands, more or less. And as the northern extent of it, uh, the channel... Strait of Georgia stops and splits. There's uh, two channels that head south, one next to Vancouver Island and one next to uh, the mainland of the United States with these island, San Juan Islands in between. So what the uh, dispute was over is where that main channel was, uh, heading down to the Strait of Juan de Fuca, which is the... Uh, definitely main channel between uh, along the northerly boundary of the mainland and it uh, segregates off uh, Vancouver Island to the north and there were maps everybody knew that there were two channels but it was ignored and a uh, defective uh, description was prepared and used in the uh, in the treaty that and that ended up precipitating into the war so we came over to San Juan. We spent a whole day talking about boundaries and how they were done, etc. And then actually came over and you got to look and see where the boundary was, which is out in the middle of water, and you got to come across because we took buses from uh, Bellingham South for about an hour and a half and then another hour plus on Washington State ferries to come from the mainland over to San Juan Island. And uh, it was a, the whole program for the uh, meeting is set up to be a little bit different. We all have gone to enough seminars and uh, conferences to know that you can sit for days in a room. And, it, well, we put a break in it so you could actually go out and see what was going on. So we did San Juan Island um, for a day by going to both American camp and, uh, where the Americans had a uh, group of uh, soldiers stationed for 13 years. Uh, there are 100 of them down there, and then up to English camp, which is at the northern part of the island, where the British had the same amount for the same length of time, while the Kaiser Germany arbitrated uh, where the uh, boundary was going to be. And... Uh, Everybody got a nice break, got to see some of the island, and then we brought them back, and uh, I pulled out a bunch of my instruments and put them on display, and K Tim Kent um, used solar instruments and did a demonstration uh, here at the house. Well, Kurt, you know where that's at, right out in the sunshine, yep. of uh, solar instruments. He had about six of them set up out there, and uh, it was and hands-on situation if you wanted to. And, of course, we put them downwind for, uh, from where we were barbecuing salmon for dinner. 
Yeah, I remember your your instruments from a, a, a XCOM meeting there years and years ago. We did a little uh, competition out in the backyard, you and Chuck Tapley and me and a couple other folks. Yeah, I think, I, Sam, I think Sam was there probably. Oh, yeah, and Jim was here. That's right, Jim was there. That's that's right. So when you went across from the mainland, did you took that Anacortes to Friday Harbor route? Or? Yes. And uh, that gave everybody something different to look at, as you well know. And well, was, well, people still comment on it, John. Uh, just the, one of the highlights of the of the whole rendezvous was the ferry trip. The weather cooperated, uh, and so many of the East Coast had never been in the area, period, let alone being on a Washington State ferry. And also, you're being a little modest there on your equipment demonstration. Uh, Kurt, you cannot believe all the time and effort John went into uh, presenting his various instruments in different rooms uh, there is on his home place and he had some help you know setting them up and John can you know speak to that but I mean people were just absolutely amazed at the uh, the amount of you know instruments that John has but not only the the detail that he, you know the descriptions that he's uh, that he's prepared for all practically all of them so John does that mean that Vicky's idea of taking all that stuff somewhere else turned into a bigger storage area at your place. <laughs> oh, jeez. Well, no, the, I spent the, the summer con- converting uh, the uh, bottom of my barn uh, into uh, sort of display areas of shelving, etc. So I had a bunch of my instruments down at my office that had been sort of just stowed when I sold the office. But uh, so now I've got them set up in there. But this winter I'm supposed to work on my Model Ts, and that's where they're at. So now I got to find some other place to put all the instruments again. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's one thing that that we will never, as surveyors, uh, change. I don't think in terms of our interest in um, old, the old instrumentation. It's it's just one of those things that's so intriguing to us. I think to Knowing, knowing the technologies that we've used during our lifetimes, and of course, in, in our lifetimes, that's changed pretty tremendously. But, uh, but looking back and actually being able to, to have hands-on some of that old equipment that pretty much most of us don't get to do, so that that's good that folks like you have have put in the time and effort to uh, to develop those types of of collections, so people can can see them and see what they're like. Yeah, you speaking, speaking of collections, by the way, on a sad note, you know the the National Surveyors Museum had to close up in Springfield. They ran out of funds, and uh, at our meetings this past week up in Ohio, um, Lisa Van Horn, representing the surveyors out in Wisconsin, they had kind of paid off some debt there and and got some artifacts from what was left out of the out of the museum and. They had the flags, the banners from all the states that state societies that had contributed, and uh, people were able to pick up their banner and take it back to their state, which was kind of a cool thing. So, uh, just just more thoughts about our our past and our future, I guess. So we need to go to break. Let's do that, and we'll come back and do our last segment. Attention, surveyors! Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead. 
the best just got better. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Want to know if your Seanstead locator is still under warranty? Go to Seanstead.com and click on Warranty Finder in the lower left-hand corner. Enter your six-digit serial number, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Out of warranty? Click on Repair Department. But here's a tip. Before sending it in, pick up a $25 discount by going to Specials and Sales under the Buy Now tab at www.schonstedt.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. We're back with our last segment with Danny DeMeyer and John Thalaker today. It's always always great fun for me when I get you guys on the show because <laughs> we have so many things to talk about, no matter what the topic is. And, and of course, this, this uh, rendezvous was a great one. And, and Danny, I know you wanted to, to talk a bit about, I know our president, John Warren, uh, came up for the event, and then you guys did some leave-behind things that, that will uh, sort of perpetuate this whole thing. Yeah, it was a it was something started uh, by the, on, uh, in 2013 by Chaz Langland and his group uh, who sponsored the rendezvous in Philadelphia. And they had, uh, you know, instead of just, you know, showing up for the rendezvous and having a good time and leaving, you know, can we leave something in the ground, so to speak? Can we leave something behind for the public, some informational uh, material, uh, something that promotes our profession? So uh, Chaz had... had uh, left three things, what I call, in the ground for the, the public in, uh, in Philadelphia. And uh, one was, I think, the, southern, the start of the Mason-Dixon line. Uh, one was the true location of the Stargazer Stone, which was uh, set by Mason and Dixon when establishing uh, some of the lines over there. And I forget the third one, but, uh, oh, no, I'm sorry, it was uh, Charles Mason was buried in an unmarked grave in Christchurch uh, Cemetery there in Philadelphia. And uh, so uh, Chaz was able to recover mysteriously one of the original Mason-Dixon stones, mile markers, and they uh, we erected a, uh, a small plaque in a, uh, one of those milestones uh, over the vicinity of Charles Smart's, uh, or Smart, Charles Smart's, I'm sorry, Charles Mason's, Grave. So there's three things left behind in Philadelphia. So we kind of took up that that idea and said, you know, what can we do here? Um, so I contacted two um, state parks, uh, Washington State Parks. One was on Susha Island Marine Park, which is the most heavily visited marine park in in our state, uh, and also Peace Arch State Park, which is right on the international boundary in Blaine. So, and they were very, uh, can't say enough for the state parks in Olympia and the, the local park managers. Uh, they were all over it, you know, said yes, that we would welcome the opportunity to give information that would share light on the, um, on you know, pub, the public's visit to their individual parks. So we put together a, um, for Peace Arch Park, we put 
we installed three large panels. Uh, that was on Saturday. We had lectures Saturday morning and then a field trip to Peace Arch State Park uh, where we dedicated these four panels, and we had uh, the two international boundary commissioners speak. We had John Warren, who's president of NSPS, speak, uh, president of the Surveyors Historical Society, Richard Liu, uh, and I think that's about it. Uh, but that the dedication of these four panels, and the four panels, three of them were at, on the history of the original survey of the international boundary, picturing pe- uh, pictures and maps and biographies of the various individuals. Uh, what we tried to stress was, you know, the the surveyors that were in the equipment used to establish the boundary were the actual best equipment that both countries could provide and the best people because they were establishing a, a boundary between two countries. So, you know, they realized the importance of it. So we put together three panels on that and then also one panel on what was called the evolution of the Oregon Territory or the international boundary where um, for 30 years uh, the United States, well, 1814 to 1846, uh, pretty much wanted the 49th parallel from the Rocky Mountains all the way to the ocean cutting right through Vancouver's Island, and the, um, the British wanted uh, a variation of basically the Columbia River. Uh, the Columbia meanders through the state of Washington, and but everything north and west of the Columbia, they wanted. So it wasn't until 1846 that was uh, resolved. So we, we put up panels there uh, and dedicated them on Saturday. Sunday was an optional field trip to uh, Susha Island Marine Park, where 40 of us uh, chartered a boat and uh, went out there, spent the day um, restoring monuments that are on Susha Island. Susha Island's unique in that it has, you know, four different, um, uh, so has four different surveys. There was a stone mine uh, located on the island. Uh, of course, the general land office uh, did surveys there. Uh, the Lighthouse Reserve Board uh, did a survey forgetting the fourth one here. But anyway, there's USGS. The U.S. Coast and Geodetic, there we have the triangulation stations. Thanks, John. Um, there, so Sioux Island is pretty unique. And so my over the years, my wife and I, who love to spend time in the San Juans and others, uh, have recovered a lot of the monuments there. So I let, I let the park ranger know that there's a lot of monuments there that, that would I think the people would better appreciate if they knew a little bit more about them. So we put together a, a, a well, four by eight, four foot by eight foot panel. Uh, it was an aerial photograph of Susha Island with all the incredible amount of monuments that are located around the periphery and in the interior, together with some pictures of what the monuments look like in background on the four surveys. Um, and that was dedicated on Sunday uh, at Susha Island Marine Park. So we left behind large, colorful, informational panels, um, you know, about that, those individual parks, together with a little bit of credit on the bottom, all of our sponsors uh, were able to be listed um, uh, on the bottom, so we got a little bit of uh, publicity there also. Yeah, I'm sitting here looking at a sort of, I guess, a screenshot of the, the poster finding history on Susha Island, and and I'm looking at the... Uh, I guess it's the aerial photograph, the color one, and then a bunch of the old maps. And it, just just looking at those old maps and not knowing exactly when they were done, but looking at how accurate they seem to be in comparison to that aerial photo, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's uh, another underappreciated, you know, facet uh, there. Um, 
just the, the time and effort that went into the, some of the mapping of the individual islands. The, uh, I later learned later that the Lighthouse Reserve Board uh, map actually came from the U.S. Coast and Geodetic uh, Survey. It's one of those things that you learn after you print, <laughs> you know, after you print <laughs> yeah. the panel. There's nothing wrong on the panel. It's just that it's information I kind of wish I would have added uh, uh, to it. But, yeah, most of the, the surveys were done in the 1890s and early 1900s. Early, late 1890s is fairly early for us. Uh, actually, 1850s for the U.S. Coast and Geodetic, or U.S. Coast Survey, um, which is early for us, but I realize it's not that early for you folks back east. Yeah, John, you, you mentioned earlier, I believe you said 172 islands in the San Juans. And, and in looking at this this picture of Susha, I see a number of of pieces of land that are not connected to each other. So I guess my question is, does this entire group count as one island, or do each one of those individual ones make up part of the 172? Depends upon which day of the week. <laughs> no, <laughs> this is something that is ongoing and is it, it's uh, really a moving target. It's it's worse than. Um, reestablishing GLO corners. Uh, an island is defined as anything above the line of ordinary high tide, you know, land. Mm-hmm. And the line of ordinary high tide in tidal waters varies from place to place, and it uh, goes through a th- uh, 13-year epoch. So you're always uh, going to have something as a more or less situation in certain areas. Um, that's why uh, now uh, we have LIDAR for the entire county, which is just fine, but it's on mean high tide, which varies as much as uh, two feet across the country or uh, across the county. So uh, the, the small ones you see there, yes, are islands, uh, unless that photo was taken at low tide, uh, the tide will vary. Well, maximum variation is about 14 feet, but on a daily basis, about 7 feet. And um, if it was taken at low tide, very likely uh, later in the day, uh, they'd be underwater, so they wouldn't be islands. I see. We've got uh, a little over three minutes left here. It sounds to me as though you guys had one heck of a good time pulling all this together, and then it must have been quite rewarding to see how how it really worked out. Well, the bottom line on it, uh, after what we did or didn't do or whatever, both Denny and I have been involved with conferences over the years, but tried to make it as interesting uh, and uh, as varied as we possibly could for people, and that's hopefully what's going to happen with the rendezvous in the, in the future. There will be... Some specific things, but there'll be some really interesting things that will be uh, something other than uh, using satellites. Yeah, it sounds like over the next few years you're going to be going east again, and then really east in 18 <laughs> when you go to England. Yeah, we're really looking forward to that. It's uh, evidently the something anniversary, I can't do whether the 200th anniversary or 250th anniversary of the establishment of the Royal Observatory in England. And, uh, oh, wow. There's going to be big, a big to-do in England, and they've invited us to uh, participate. This would be in May. 
Uh, I just wanted to mention, just just thank all the people. Uh, as you know, Kurt, you know it takes a lot of people to pull this something like this off. And, uh, and like John had said, we tried to make it interesting, educational, and also enjoyable, which I think you know we we did. Uh, but I just want to thank the, our committee members, uh, John and Vicky and Tim uh, Kent, and the two Canadians, Ron and Gail Scovey and uh, Robert Allen, who couldn't attend because of a medical, private medical uh, thing. Uh, just what it takes to pull this off, and I cannot thank the committee members enough. Together with the people that you uh, hire, just you, you're aware of how many things that can go wrong with uh, when you charter a bus for three different days. Are they going to show up on time? Are they going to be able to <laughs> just little things? And I cannot, you know, speak highly enough of not only the facility that we rented, uh, Silver Reef Casino, but Bel Air Buses, who was was with us for three days and had to navigate <laughs> the roads in these huge tour buses, navigate the roads on San Juan Island. Uh, we were literally creeping through some of the the access points, I mean, like at two miles an hour, uh, trying not to bust off mirrors and things, uh, but just how uh, how everyone, how it, everyone, you know, did their, their job, and, uh, and it went off uh, really quite, quite nicely. Well, we're down to our last minute here, so I want to thank you guys again for being coming back and doing a wrap-up from, uh, from our first show, and sounds like, by all accounts, it went very, very well, and I agree with you about pulling all those pieces together and herding the cats and getting something like this done it's uh, it's always a challenge but certainly rewarding uh, on the back end and especially when you feel confident as you guys do and what you did that the people who attended all really got got their money's worth so to speak so thanks again for for agreeing to come back on the show under on such short notice but uh yeah, I do very much appreciate it, as I'm sure our listeners do as well. So thank you. Well, thank you, Kurt, by the way, for having us, uh, and then for all of your support uh, on some of the projects that we've done over the years. I appreciate uh, you having us on. Well, it's certainly my pleasure. It's always great to talk to the two of you. I, ha- I have a good time no matter what the topic is. So <laughs> thanks again. Take care, and it's time for us to sign off. So I'll talk to you later on. Thanks. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.